Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. Dr. Vinay Prasad here from UCSF. I passed a milestone, 300 peer-reviewed publications. And I sat back and I reflected upon that and I put out a string of tweets. And somebody who works with me said that would make a great video. So here you go, 20 things I learned from publishing 300 papers over 12 years. Number one, don't include too many authors on these papers. Now, every time you go to submit one of these papers to a journal, you gotta put in the author's name, their institution, their email address, it gets to be too much. You got too many authors, you're wasting hours of your life. God help people with 30 plus authors. God help those physicists. Number two, if somebody's willing to submit the paper on your behalf, well, maybe they deserve authorship after all. Let's not be too hasty here. Number three, if the journal asks to suggest reviewers, and sometimes journals do, but not often, but if they do, you're going to select people who you think like you or who like the work. Number four, you can never predict who likes you or who likes the work, and you're going to regret picking those people after all. Side note, top journals, they don't make you suggest reviewers. They know who to ask. Number five, the only reviewer who's worse than someone who hates your guts is somebody who's working in the exact same space. It's like the old saying that uh, academic politics are the most nasty because the stakes are so low. Number six, the papers that you think are the most brilliant and innovative are the ones that are going to get the most rejections. And the papers you think are dull and plodding and obvious are going to get accepted right away. Number seven, Journals are absolutely indifferent to time. Journal editors, they don't own watches and they don't have calendars. Except, of course, when proofs are due. Because when proofs are due, you got 48 hours to turn it in or they're going to murder you. Number eight, you could be on a computer screen in the Amazon and they will find you and, and they will punish you if you don't turn those proofs around. Number eight, show me a person with 300 publications and I'll show you somebody with 3,000 rejections because that's about the right ratio. Number nine, actually writing your own papers is hard. Hashtag, we didn't use any medical writers for this. Writing papers is necessary and you gotta do it yourself. You can't use medical writers. That's farming out the cognitive work. It's unacceptable. Number 10, the absolute best thing you can do in research is to work with people who are smarter than you. And each year I'm lucky to recruit a few such smart people and they do all the hard work. Number 11, the most important part of the paper. The most important part of the paper isn't the methods. It's not how you wrote it. It's the motivating idea in the beginning. Is it a good idea? And what's a good idea? A good idea has to be clever. It has to be topical. It has to be interesting no matter the result, whether it's positive or negative. And it has to not be too obvious. You don't want to have an idea in a space where too many people are chasing it because they're going to get scooped. Number 12, learning new methods and techniques is great. But uh, the most important thing, when you teach someone, 
is teaching them how to think of those ideas. And related to that, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to get more letters behind my name, I always say, you don't need more letters to do research. You just need good ideas and you need to start doing it. You need to apprenticeship. Number 13, open access fees. My God, 3,000, 5,000, they can make your eyes pop out. But the only thing more expensive than spending $5,000 for an accepted article is spending $60 so that JCO can reject your article. Come on, JCO, you can't charge me to review my articles. Number 14, rest assured, for at least one paper you publish, but probably more, you're the only person who's ever read it cover to cover. Your co-authors didn't read it cover to cover. The journal editor didn't read it and the reviewers didn't read it. You're the only one who read it cover to cover. And Lord knows, ain't no readers who read it cover to cover. 15, never let a delinquent, unethical control arm hold back your dream of a first author New England Journal paper. Number 16, if your research mentor hasn't published 10 papers in the last year, then your research mentor needs a research mentor and you need a new research mentor. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's a hurtful thing to say, but it's absolutely true. And I know people are not gonna like it, but you know, the truth hurts sometimes, but it's really true. You need a research mentor who publishes more than 10 a year. Otherwise they need some coaching and you need a new mentor. Number 17, it's not about the impact factor. Impact factor is not the most important thing in the world. But at the same time, no one reads most of these journals and you kind of want your articles to be in journals people read. So the impact factor does matter to some degree. Don't publish articles in journals no one reads. Number 18, one good paper, it's worth a thousand posters or it's worth even one poster taking up space in the overhead bin. Don't publish a thousand posters and shove them in those tubes and store them in your attic. Write one good paper, that's all you need to do. Number 19, if you're bored in the middle of doing a research project, abandon ship. Because if you're bored right now, ain't no one interested in reading those results. Number 20, Twitter is fun, tutorials are neat, YouTube is fun, podcasts are great, op-ed writing is a delight, but none of that is scholarship. The only thing that scholarship is publishing peer-reviewed publications and peer-reviewed books, and no one is going to promote you over these other things. I know what people keep saying. They keep saying that someday promotion committees are gonna take into account all this stuff. That day's not today. That day's not even close. It's a long time from now. A lot of people are gonna need to die before that day comes, and I might be one of them, because. I don't personally think it's scholarship either. Number 21, you don't have to publish academic papers to know what you're talking about. You don't need to publish academic papers to be a really savvy reader of the literature, but you know, it does help. It actually helps quite a bit. Number 22, if as you're doing a publication during the course of the paper, and as you're watching the sausage be made, you no longer trust that conclusion, don't publish that paper. Don't pollute the literature with things you don't yourself believe. Number 23, the only thing worse than a collaborator with too few edits is somebody with too many edits. God help us if they have too many edits. Number 24, if you didn't find this funny, you're doomed. Your career as an academic is going nowhere because you have to have a sense of humor and not take yourself too seriously. And on that note, this was meant a bit to cheer you up. And if you really want actual career advice, go to my website, find the contact page and send me an email and I'll give you some actual career advice. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I hope that these reflections really do come from, they do come from my experience having published 300 papers over 12 years, and they might resonate with you if you're in the publishing business. So until next time. Hi, Dr. Vinay Prasad here from the University of California, San Francisco. I want to talk about a new paper we have out now, joined by my longtime collaborator and good friend, Jenny Gill. We have out at the International Journal of Cancer, a new paper on telemedicine and what it might mean going forward. It's entitled, After COVID-19, Telemedicine Might Be Used In Addition To 
and not in lieu of usual care, implications for healthcare systems. So let me walk you through this paper. Now, of course, we know COVID-19 has been massively disruptive to those of us who practice cancer medicine. It has derailed many clinical trials and it has compromised, I think, to some degree, the ability we have to see and take care of cancer patients. Over the next year and decades, we will learn more about what COVID-19 meant for cancer patients. We might learn that we omitted some things that it was actually good to omit. Maybe some cycles of chemotherapy were unnecessary. Maybe some of the screening tests we had been doing were overrated. And we will learn that by foregoing those therapies, we didn't lose any outcomes. That will be good information to know. But very likely we've also omitted many things that are truly beneficial to our patients. And the next decade will tease that out. In this paper, we talk about the implications of telemedicine. All of us in oncology over the last year, year and a half, we've grown comfortable with telemedicine. We now see many patients whom we would have seen in person via Zoom or whatever proprietary platform they're using on Epic. These visits are almost as good as a real thing. For some things in oncology, they're likely to be an adequate substitute. You have a patient who underwent curative breast cancer treatment and you're just seeing in follow-up, a Zoom visit makes sense. You have a patient who has CR after treatment for a large cell lymphoma and they're three years out, Zoom visits make sense, particularly if people live a long way out and they have to come all the way just to see the doctor. But telemedicine has hitherto been understood as something that is used in lieu of regular care. And in this commentary, Jenny Gill and I imagine what might happen in the future where telemedicine is increasingly used in addition to, rather than in lieu of routine care. What might, might that, what might that mean? Well, one thing it might mean is many academic medical centers like MD Anderson, MSKCC and Dana-Farber, they may start to advertise second opinions and consults via telemedicine. In fact, thus far, one of the biggest barriers to second opinions has been the fact that patients have to go all the way to these cancer centers to get that opinion, no longer. Telemedicine allows you to get the second opinion of an Anderson doctor, a Mayo Clinic doctor, a St. Jude doctor, a Dana-Farber doctor, all in the span of a few days, all via Zoom from the comfort of your home. Jenny Gill and I imagine that this will radically transform cancer in the years to come. We know that not every patient seeks out a second opinion, but surveys suggest between six and 36% of people do. We might find that as many as one in five patients seek out multiple second opinions. These might be patients who truly have a disease for which second opinions are warranted, but it might also be patients who have some anxiety or concerns, or also patients who have a lot of financial resources who want to find out the opinion of the quote unquote best cancer centers, according to the US News and World Report cancer ranking. The US News and World Report cancer ranking actually has very little to do with actually providing good care. And so what I think you will find is that many patients will be getting many, many cooks in the kitchen. There's gonna be a newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patient somewhere in Oregon. And they're gonna get the opinion of a Mayo Clinic doctor, an Arkansas doctor, a Carolina's doctor, an MSKCC doctor. And all of those doctors may say something different. We all know there is no consensus on what is the de facto frontline treatment in a disease like multiple myeloma. And there's heavy debate. We featured it on my podcast about what to do in a high risk situation. And naturally these doctors are gonna disagree with each other. And so there is a tension that's gonna happen. I think a few things will ensue. One, right now in oncology, the most important thing that leads to good outcomes more than anything in the world is having a relationship with someone whom you can trust, someone that you can talk to and communicate and have some faith in. And that is a sacred relationship that has gone back a long time in medicine. 
And I worry that telemedicine will rob us of that in some degree. If I'm a community doctor taking care of a patient, but they're also being seen by a Mayo Clinic doctor and a Dana-Farber doctor and a Sloan Kettering doctor, will they trust me the same way? Will they doubt me if these other doctors contradict me? Or who will they trust if all of the doctors contradict each other? That will be one challenge to face. I think the other challenge is something that we talk about, which is the bystander effect. It's well known that when many people are involved or are aware of the situation, no one takes ownership of the situation. One of the beauties of medicine is that you take ownership. You own your decision-making. But if many people are deciding on what ought to happen, no one will take ownership and potentially some things may fall through the cracks. It's possible by getting many opinions, you get worse care rather than better care. We also discuss some of the deeper challenges, the challenges of equity. Who will be the people who get access to all of these doctors? Will it be everyone? I think it won't be. It'll be sort of rather, rather biased, rather skewed. So what are our thoughts? I think it has not yet been explored as much as it ought to be. The telemedicine is a sharp tool in the tool bag. It can cut in many ways. It can make a lot of things easier for people with cancer, and I hope and expect it'll do some of that. But it can also hurt us. It can also subvert and rob us of real relationships with real people. It can lead to a situation where so many people are involved in the care of a patient that no one person makes all the decisions, that all of us abdicate responsibility, that people hear conflicting and disputed recommendations and they come to trust no one. And so I'm very concerned about telemedicine. I think we cannot naturally assume that will only lead to good. And in this commentary, Jen and Gil and I walk you through some of the pitfalls, some of the things to be aware of. So telemedicine, will it be used in lieu of or in addition to traditional care? I think that's something we have to think about. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.